Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to episode 68 of Strangers in a Cinema. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with my other co-host, Pete Wall, and producer slash sometime host, Jack Mills. Hello. First things first, I'm the realist. Right, let's get started (laughs) on another episode of this show. Uh, We've got all the bits that you usually enjoy, all, uh, what what was it last time, 20, 30,000, I think, something in that region? You lose count after a while, to be honest, when you're at a level, and we're definitely at that level. What figure are you referring to, Pete? I'm uh, thirty thousand things, thousand <laughs> films in Paul's list of films that he's watched. How many films have you watched this year, Paul? Because I know that you're not going to talk about this if I don't bring it up myself. Well, I was thinking about bringing it up, but you know, uh, maybe I was going to mention it. But talk about it, Paul. Okay, talk about it. I have now watched three hundred and. 66 films so far this oh, year. Oh, you've missed the I target. I am over. You fucked up. I am over. It's supposed to be 365. Yeah, but I can't do a podcast if I don't watch any more films this year. Well, as I told so. you, Paul, when you uh, started lording this over the world on social media, winners hit 500. So if you haven't How many hit, have you seen? Come talk to me when you've hit 500, How son. many have you seen? Uh, I'm aiming for 250. Got different targets. Right. In the end, as Baz Luhrmann says, the race is only with yourself. Right, okay. I'm going to win my race, no matter Fine. which number I finish on. Jack, how many films have you seen? Moving yeah, on. Yeah, at least start. <laughs> at, least, at least start on him, Paul. How many yeah. is he on? Like a hundred films. Oh, good. Quality over quantity, though, isn't it, Jack? Yeah. It's because you spend all your free time thinking of ways to polish this turd of a show, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what I say that. every time. Oh, Paul, don't downgrade the show. Paul, don't slag I'm off the joking. show. Don't be negative. Polish a turd is what we're coming with now. There are, your mother listens to this show. Right, um, we are going to jump, as we always do, into the foyer and we're going to discuss something on a theme that relates to films. And Paul, this week, we are linking again to one of our features. Explain. Uh, So yes, we are linking to one of our feature reviews, which is uh, Battle of the Sexes, um, which is a film around, well, kind of about sports, really. So... Well, I well, suppose. It is. Yes, it is about sports, yes. So it's about is... sports and, and other issues that yes. surround those sports. It's almost like a lot of sports movies are used as a ground, a sort of fertile ground for, for linking with areas of society that need exploration. Yes. Maybe that's going to tie into my pick for best sports film. But let's start with you guys, enough well, from me. I suppose best sports film is probably, it certainly isn't why I've picked this, but it is my favourite sports film. So I'm going with Rocky Four. I, oh, I can't believe why it. Why Rocky Four? Why Rocky Four? Because it's the most ridiculous and fun out of the whole series. It's so over the top. He trains. He trains by running up a mountain and shouting "Drugo!" You've never at done the that. top of the mountain. No, I've not done that. You've seen me. You've seen me, right? We used to do that every time we ran to Pitville Park. You'd run up that little mound and you put yeah, your arms. Yeah, it felt like a mountain. Aloft. It felt like I was training like Rocky. And I did say actually, if someone can package a Rocky training montage like training program where you could do in the time it takes to do a training montage be in the shape of Stallone in this film that'd be incredible someone make a fortune Paul can I can I whisper a confession to you yeah I've never seen any of the Rocky films you've never seen any never Rocky seen films any oh, oh it's okay. one of those would be like oh yeah we've been playing Rocky you've got to see Rocky no I haven't and now I'm not watching them just despite people who think I should watch them oh, yeah. I've right. never seen never seen a Rambo, Rambo film mate I'm just going to throw that out there as well how many are there like five I haven't seen any. Four. Four, I haven't seen any. So you didn't even know the number. Jack's um, seen a Rambo film. Yeah, Jack, have you yeah seen I've a, seen a Rambo, a Rambo film. film. And a Rocky film. And a Rocky film. Well, I hereby hand watched... in my resignation. <laughs> have, you, have you not watched any films at the beginning with the letter R? Is no, that what it is? I don't like the letter R. <laughs> yeah. I don't like it. 
Uh, yeah, Rocky Four because it, it's, it's silly, it's over the top, it's absolute nonsense. Ivan Drago's in it. Uh, Carl Weathers' entrance to the ring as Apollo Creed is one of the best things I've ever seen committed to film. It's insane. Has um, he got that upward trajectory like when Goal moved on to Goal 2, living the dream with uh, David Beckham and Raul? Is kind of. Like- I like the fact that you've seen the Goal films, but not the Rocky <laughs> films. <laughs> with G, mate, of course. <laughs> got earlier in the alphabet. I mean, it's a priority then, isn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, Jack. What have you got? For, uh... What was that noise there, Jack? Is that, you, you I don't know. I'm just trying to like think about what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> I've chosen "White Men Can't Jump." I've never seen that. In fact, with Woody Harrison and Wesley Snipes, and it's about basketball. And it came out the year I was born. Was that what last doing, year? What were you doing watching that kind of film? Yeah, the, the, the year, year I you was were born. born. I don't know. Did you get the subject? What year were you born, Jack? One. I was born year one <laughs> in nineteen. 19- 92. 92, Child of the Nights. A full 10 years after I was born. Yes, that is correct. Wow. I know. Why do you like this film? Sorry, we digress. Why do I like this film? Uh, Because I used to obsess over basketball when I was younger, and it seemed like a suitable film. Were you ever tall enough to play it? No, I wasn't. (laughs) That's a a very sore subject. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't We won't get into that. Okay. Okay, thanks. He wished he was a little bit taller. He wished he was a baller. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Jack, yeah. you've made a, a good basketball-related pick there, and I'm now going to make a better one. Um, the, I think the best sports movie of all times is uh, the one that I wasn't allowed to talk about because it's a documentary, so no to one hell said with that, it. You, no one said you couldn't talk about it. You decided not to talk about it. I feel like I get a bad rap for bringing in documentaries too much, but this one is a film from 1994, uh, Hoop Dreams. I don't know if you lads have seen this this movie. I have, yeah. It's a, it's a long one. It's probably two hours and a half, two hours and three quarters, something like that, but worth every minute of it. And it never, it's one of those films that's like quite lengthy, but never feels long at all. It's this labour of love documentary that charts, I believe, three individuals who yeah. are growing up in various um, social situations, but all of them to a greater or lesser degree in sort of urban poverty in the United States. And they're all chasing the carrot, which is getting to the NBA. If you can get to the NBA, you're made, your family's made, generations after you are made. But, you know, one twisted ankle, one broken finger, one disagreement with a coach, and that entire dream, you know, is completely shattered. So uh, Hoop Dreams is just utterly compelling. I was going to go for something like Raging Bull, but like even that, to me, is sort of eclipsed in my memory as a sports movie that not only taps into the drama of the sport itself, but also touches on so many issues that surround the sport, as I was mentioning at the lead into to this part. So if you haven't seen it, do find it. Hoop Dreams 1994, I believe, streaming on either Amazon or Netflix. Okay. I don't think I've seen it recently. So basically, I've never seen Hoop Dreams, but Jack has. Mm. Pete's never seen Rocky. I haven't seen White Men Can't Jump either. And I you haven't seen White Men Can't Jump either. I don't know where I'm going with this. Should we go on to the next section? Well, I guess I'll finish <laughs> that thought, which is uh, we're definitely going to do a sports-themed episode. We'll review all of those films at some point in the yes, future. Yes, I like it. That's where <laughs> I was going with that. Thanks for the save there. Right, um, that's it for In the Foyer. We'll be back after this with Popcorn Movies. So, uh, kick off, I guess, this time. Popcorn movie number one for me this week 
is um, one that is um, utterly non-essential, it turns out. It's called The Riot Club, <laughs> and it was released in 2014 from director Lona Scherfig. I believe she's a Danish uh, film director who directed things like An Education... Which I really liked. Um, I still haven't yeah. seen, uh, but I would like to. What's the name of the girl in that who makes me cry all the time? Carrie Mulligan. Oh, is it Carrie Mulligan? Oh, I'm confusing it with another actress in that case. I think she's in an education, um, some other was mistaken. But. Also, uh, one day, um, Lona Scherfig's uh, on her CV, I guess. But this one, The Riot Club, basically tries to, I guess, give us an insight into The Riot Club, which is a secret organisation that exists within Oxford University. I don't know whether this is a real thing or a made-up thing. It is, thing, yeah, because... Some politicians uh, were in ex, it, yeah. Ex prime minister was in it. Oh, Davy, Davy Cameron was in it. Cameron, he? yeah. So they didn't, they didn't actually fuck any pigs in this, but um, yeah, the the Riot Club. The the problem with the movie, I think, is that you get you're surrounded by unlikable tough characters, except for one who's supposed to be the sort of you know the the audience's avenue in, who's a little bit more likable. But by and large, you're just spending time with sort of tiring adolescent idiots and that's fine because the point we're making is that you know these kinds of people are tiring adolescent idiots but the film doesn't seem to have much else to say and I feel like that's just telling me something that I already realised maybe if you did maybe if you thought that politicians that that run our country um, and others you know grew up in a sort of um uh, college or university lifestyle whereby they treated all others even if they were a lot poorer or you know um, disadvantaged with with humility and, and great honor then this is going to come as a you know worldview shattering piece of um news i guess but no to me the right club is uh ends up being kind of dull um the, the whole film get comes to a head with their first big gathering where they hire a room at a pub and then they're served by a landlord who thinks that he's lent the room out to some um, like entre- young entrepreneurs or something like that. And then they trash the place and smash everything up and do horrible, unspeakable things. Uh, and then what? We shrug and we come out of this and we walk back into the world and we let the people who rule the country and get away with, with the things that they do and live in a life of such luxury, carry on with what they're doing. So I feel like the Riot Club is sort of a, a lot of bluster um, on a sort of road to not anywhere really it's got the guy in it from uh, Years and Years though the lead singer at Years and Years who's in uh, Enter the Void so that's oh okay yeah I remember, I remember you saying he was in Enter the Void uh, a yeah. lot of English actors yeah. with, with very high cheekbones of the sort of Sam Claflin uh, set <laughs> he's one of them uh, but yeah I mean oh, I was he know. in this yeah I, oh. I found it I found it tiresome and um, pretty uninteresting and I, I, I think I react more strongly when a film takes on something that is potentially quite a serious issue and just kind of puts it on the screen for the sake of putting it on the screen. So, yeah, I mean, get at me if I'm being too harsh or if you enjoyed The Riot Club more than I, more than I did but didn't like it. Thumbs down. Paul, what have you got? Talking of thumbs down, uh, <laughs> uh, I've got Rough Night, um, which is a comedy from earlier in the year, directed by, I think it's Lucia Anelio. 
starring Scarlett Johansson, uh, Gillian Bell and Zoe Kravitz, amongst others. Can I just say, um, Paul, it's so funny that you're reviewing Rough Night this week because when I was watching The Riot Club, I said to my girlfriend, this is like, and you're going to know how damning this is, this is like Rough Night with toffs and less jokes. Wow, OK. Like, not as funny. So tell the listeners just how high that bar is with Rough Night. Uh, to be honest, I think the Rough Night's pushing is, good, is certainly pushing the mummy for the film I've enjoyed the least this year. Um, it's given me a much, much better appreciation of just how funny Girls' Night actually is and makes me want to watch Girls' Night uh, again and probably again and again after Girl, that. Girls' Trip. Girls' Trip, yeah, not Girls' Night, sorry. Yeah, that's how much I like the film, I got the title wrong. Uh, girls' Trip, uh, yes. Oh, I got it confused because it's Rough Night, there we go. Um, yeah, I don't really know what happened with this film, to be honest. Scarlett Johansson has done some kind of amusing stuff on, on Saturday Night Live. Kate McKinnon is... Uh, Kate McKinnon's in this as well. Uh, she's someone that... I think I want to find funnier than I do actually find funny. I'm not too au fait with her work on Saturday Night Live, but in this and, and Ghostbusters are probably the two films I've seen her in. She's, she's just, game. She's very game, yeah, but it doesn't work for her. Just, I understand it She just seems, comes across as quite annoying. And to be honest, all of the characters in this film, none of them are particularly likeable. I don't think any of the cast are supposed to be like age-old friends. And again, Gillian Bell, normally funny. Uh, just supposed to be age-old friends. But Gillian Bell is usually playing off funny Actors, yeah, actors, yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so maybe she has less to work with here. With yeah, with uh, just there was no chemistry between the the cast at all. Some of the the humour. There's a bit where um, Scarlett Johansson's uh, fiance drives to kind of save the day. Ends up taking crystal meth, and there's some weird jokes about wanking off drive like cab drivers. And... Oh, he's totally tacked on that. Yeah, it's section, just so right? totally weird and. To be honest, I didn't. I think I maybe raised half a smile once. I just thought it was dreadful, absolutely dreadful. Uh, moving on. Second for me this week then is a film. I've I've gone through a little run of what trying to watch sort of uh, classic forties and fifties movies of late and uh, catching up with a load of things that again we always say this, but like should have seen at some point. Mm. And you know, there's, there's only so many days. I watched Gilda from nineteen forty six. What did you think? I like uh, Gilda. So this one's directed by uh, Charles Vidor and um, stars amongst others Rita Hayworth and Glenn Ford. Um, I like this quite a bit. I mean, maybe. Mm. What I like about the film is that Rita Hayworth is so um, just like the word luminescent. Is that a word? Like Rita Hayworth in this film plays this um, sort of femme fatale sort of siren character who pulls all the men around her into her orbit. Um, she's had a relationship with the Glenn Ford character in the past. They're not together anymore. Um, you discover that early on in the movie. She's now with a, uh, a new guy who's actually called... Uh, well, I think it's pronounced Balin in this, but I like to call him Balin because he's just balling out of control. This guy has no emotions. He looks about 100 and he just walks around like <laughs> delivering these like pitter-patter, like put-down lines and being vaguely sexist. And, um, yeah, if anyone out there has also seen the film, then yeah, that's that's a great name for him, I think. Yeah, I think balling, well. yeah. balling. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, so Glenn Ford is always around. So the the, the uh, central drama here, I suppose, is wrapped up in uh, Casino. It was funny watching this close to watching Molly's Game, which we'll come to reviewing in a few weeks' time. 
But um, the casino is run by the balling, balling, by balling. He's balling in his casino. And uh, Glenn Ford comes in because he knows how to pull a fast one with a card. He's a bit of a card shark. So he's like, comes in as sort of an inside man to help in this casino operation. There comes some friction in a sort of love triangle. At one point, you see the greatest, as far as I'm concerned, 1940s beatdown, where uh, Glenn Ford sort of wards off um, or warns off uh, a male suitor to the Rita Hayworth character by delivering a slap, a backhand, both to the face, and then a throat punch. And this guy goes down, picks up his hat and scuttles off. But yeah, the the costumery on Rita Hayworth is incredible. Her performance is just, uh, to me, would bring me back to this film on its strength alone, I think. I don't know that the narrative as it stands... No, because she was... Necessarily when, stands I remember it, um, back in uni days is that, that Gilda came up in, um, in the, on the film degree as like an example of like Hollywood starlet kind of, and just the, the sort of star power and that, that Rita Hayworth had. And this is one of the... Exa- it's weird, it's funny you say that, like her star power was one of the things that comes up and like the commanding performance she has over the film. And and the Paul the dresses yeah the dresses in this like it's not some kind of confessional but I am a man who is very open with the fact that I'm really interested in like female fashion like when me and my girlfriend go shopping clothes shopping I'm not there like counting the minutes I want to make you know choices decisions or just give my opinion where it's wanted on what looks good what suits what styles work what lines work and watching Rita Hayworth in some of the outfits here I mean again that gets you you know that's worth the uh, the effort or the an hour and a half I'd say she's Rita Hayworth in, in Gilda is probably as on point as Charlize Theron is in Atomic Blonde I think that's a fair well, they're, comparison. They're virtually the same yeah, film. Yeah, the same film, yeah. <laughs> that bit where she, like, Rita Hayworth slams that guy's head in a <laughs> yeah, door. Yeah. It's fantastic. But yeah, that's uh, Rita from 1946. You can find it, I'm sure. It's or Gilda, out, in fact. Uh, long enough. Uh, sorry, Gilda, yeah. yeah. We both Rita. It today, might as well be called yeah. Rita. Yeah. Um, my second uh, popcorn film of the week is a film that I'm going to have a little bit of a moan about Cineworld here again. Sorry, everyone. Uh, a film that they put the posters up for in Cineworld in Cheltenham and then didn't bother showing. So cheers, Cineworld. Fuck you. Um, but I went to Bristol and finally got to see The Florida Project, which I was very, just, very excited just, to just see. Just in the interest of balance, by the way, if Cineworld are listening, um, we we do also like you. Paul got upset because if we ever lose our friggin' Cineworld cards, we're absolutely screwed. So just whilst we're, you know, chomping off the hand that sometimes <laughs> yeah. feeds, get, get back to your review. Yes, yes, fair enough. Uh, yeah, so this is The Florida Project. Um, the second film uh, from a director called Sean Baker, who previously directed Tangerine, shot so entirely on his iPhone, which I haven't seen, no, I've been meaning to catch up with Both it of these, I'm so jealous I've seen this. Um, and certainly on the basis of what I've seen on The Florida Project, I will be rushing to see Tangerine um, pretty quickly. Um, in short, and to, to try and keep it brief, because I think this will probably come up again in a future episode um, in the very near future, um, it's easily a contender for one of my one of my films of the year. Um, it's powerful, funny, it's deeply moving and, and fantastically shot. Just the, just the way it balances all the elements. So just, just to set up the scene, you've got um, basically Willem Dafoe, uh, probably the best I've seen him in a number of years, if not one of his top five performances, I think. Um, basically plays 
the owner of this kind of rundown hotel just outside of Disneyland in, in Florida that is in fact being used as social housing, basically. Um, and there's a young woman played by first timer who Sean Baker discovered on Instagram called, uh, played by an actress called Bria Vinati or Vinati, I think. That's probably butchered her name, so apologies. Um, she's incredible as this like sort of struggling mother with, uh, with sort of problems with alcohol and, and prostitution and this kind of thing. And then her daughter played by, the amazing Brooklyn Kimberly Prince. Um, it, the whole the whole film is kind of told from the daughter's point of view, um, and a, it's just it's it's just lovely. Like it generally, the, the closest thing I can say that it, it 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 feels a lot like a companion piece to American Honey, which was our film of the year last year. And in terms of sort of the the quality of the filmmaking, the the, vi- the visuals have taken a lot from Andrew Arnold, I'd say, and other people. I've read other comparisons uh, of. Uh, the Florida Project to Fish Tank, so there's definitely comparisons there with Andrew Arnold, but just the the sheer joy you get from seeing this thing through the eyes of the child sometimes, and then like the the closing scenes, the last twenty minutes, I was just in bits, and the closing scenes, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give any spoilers. The closing scenes are just absolutely genius. It's it's an incredibly incredibly powerful film, and I think poss- maybe suffers in its I wouldn't say suffers in its sim- similarities to American Honey, but there are similarities there, and that's, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing, but the film is absolutely superb and definitely a contender for sitting in my top five for the year, certainly. It's a great, great film. Yeah, really keen to catch up with that as soon as humanly possible. I mean, not all of us can swan off to uh, fancy towns like Bristol, Paul, and uh, just go and It's 40 see minutes on the train. New, new yeah, yeah. Who, who's going to pay for that, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> Money I'm earning from this podcast certainly will not do it. Uh, anyway, that is us uh, out. What have we got? Have we got? Have are we doing? Have you seen? Uh, yeah, well, we can. Um, have you seen? We should because we should move on from it. I think. Yeah. So we we had uh, have you seen set two weeks ago, which was Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, we'd seen it before. I've been incredibly lazy and haven't rewatched it. I'm going to admit that up front, and then we're going to have a discussion where I pretend that I have seen it again. So great watching that film this week, wasn't it, Jack? Yeah, so I have to admit that I haven't watched it ever. Or I have watched it before. So that bit that happens Uh, after 30 minutes. I believe it was film number 361 on my list of of 365 I've I've seen this year. Fantastic. Such a nerd. I believe it was 361. I filed it on a spreadsheet that Uh, I made. Sorry, you are aware that the whole shtick of this podcast is we pick on Jack and not on me. Okay, so me and Jack talked off air. Okay, yeah. Pause it. Because I actually watched the film. Anyway, right, Doctor Strange Love. It's it's great. I mean, it's... It's a kind of virtuoso central performance wrapped up in a really, really funny and also quite um, poignant comic screenplay, is it not? Uh, It's shot in black and white, it's beautiful, um, it's memorable and it touches on bigger issues than it might seem with its sort of slapstick nature. I think it's it's also surprisingly still relevant, especially at the moment with the the whole North Korea situation um, and someone like Trump in the White House it's, it's probably more poignant than it's ever been to be perfectly honest yeah, and the possibility of someone pressing one yes. button and ending and all it, this it's stuff certain, it's certainly worrying that this film is still poignant today and you can, you know and it's still oh, it's, it's still very very funny uh, not quite as I didn't laugh quite as much this time around as I did previously and maybe that is because what I've maybe that is because of what I've just mentioned because it, the whole the whole film is, is quite it's actually quite scary that 
that this could happen. You genuinely believe these events could happen. I remember, actually, Paul, you've jogged my memory. So I've seen this movie two times, I think, in my life. And the second time, uh, an ex-girlfriend and I, um, ex-girlfriend for a reason you will discover, sat down to watch this film. And and some way through, she was like, what is this? I was like, yeah, we can't be together anymore. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think that... um, it's one of those where like there's lines if you've heard the line before when you come back to that particular line you might appreciate it more than it kind of hits you as like gentlemen a, gentlemen gentlemen there's no fighting in the war room yeah we can't fight in yes. here this is the war room <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it, uh, exactly I mean but it's one of those isn't it I mean we say this kind of stuff all the time and it feels like sort of screaming in the wind but like if you haven't seen um, Doctor Strange Love Jack no you have seen it I have, but, yeah. but yeah if you haven't seen it or if you saw it ages ago and um, you know you haven't seen it for a while I think go back to it for sure but like the the performance at the centre of it from Peter Sellers is is phenomenal in fact when we've been talking recently about how uh, or maybe we is myself talking about how like films with actors or actresses playing multiple roles don't work uh, or ha- haven't worked so well the kind of stuff that Peter Sellers is capable yes, of in terms of range is, is yeah. incredible I suppose yeah the only other the only other thing I can think is is it Kind Hearts and Corridors where Alec Guinness plays all the roles um, I would back you up I haven't seen it I think it is yeah anyway yes yes the um, the yeah the evening the evening comedies did it very well with someone I'm sure it's Kind Hearts and Coronets where he plays the same role so the, um, the, yes. the film again in case you're interested is uh, from Stanley Kubrick it's Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb it's currently holding a 96% meta score which I think speaks volumes for the kind of praise that we're, we're heaping on it now and um, it whether it's streaming at the moment I don't think it is but it will be easily findable if you just dig around make a little bit of effort you'll probably pick it up second hand for, for a couple of pens yeah. can't you? so um, yeah get on that and we'll have at the end of the show today another Have You Seen which we'll review next week yes um, right that brings us to the end of Popcorn Movies this week um, coming up next we have Coming Attractions So, coming attractions are films that we're excited about that are coming up in the nearish future. Um, what I've got is one that releases, uh, according to its IMDb page anyway, in the UK on the 8th of December, which is this coming weekend. It won't go wide. It might go to major cities. So probably, Paul, if you get in your fancy car and go off to your fancy town. Or what was he the train. The train? Yeah. The train. It's a bourgeois. I'll get Michael Haneke to write a movie to take you down. It's 40 fucking minutes on a £10 train. It's, four, it's not when you're when you're going on well, no, no, on no, no, you're right. It was £9.60 return on the train and it was £6.50 to go to See, cinema. That's what he does, Jack. He just throws around all the stuff. Oh, I've got a movie. Don't even watch it. I've got £9.60 to spare. It's disgusting. To be honest, I might start a film podcast with people that live in Bristol that have seen more films than you two. People who... Okay, yeah. People who are balling. You could try that guy from Gilda. (laughs) In fact, Jack, you do the feature reviews. I'm out. (laughs) So, my coming attraction uh, is uh, Blade of the Immortal. This is the new film from uh, Mikei Takeshi, the Japanese, incredibly prolific Japanese director of... It is actually shown in Bristol. Is it really? Yeah, uh, there was yeah, a poster up. You mentioned. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah th- things like um, Visitor Q and uh, Dead or, the Dead or Alive series and Itchy the Killer and the kind of things that if you're our age, you probably um, got very excited about in your sort of early 20s or, <laughs> yeah. or late teens. And, and if you're Jack's age, you better not have seen these films <laughs> because they would have been seared into your mind as a young, young boy. Uh, I saw Itchy the Killer. That'll that'll stay with you, won't it? Itchy the killer. Yeah, um, that's pretty messed up. Where 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 what he 
does does a rape and then pisses himself. That's I think part so. Of it. Yeah, he, he cuts, cuts his, a man in half, and then the guy cuts his tongue in half as well. Yeah. <laughs> From the comments that we're making, you, you can tell that you know maybe if you're gathering for Christmas to watch a film with your nan, don't choose Blade of the Immortal. Uh, it is an 18 certificate. It tells the story of a skilled samurai who becomes cursed with immortality. Blessing and a curse, possibly, after a legendary battle. I'm already in. Uh, this is enough for me. That sort of 19-year-old in me still wants to see this kind of a movie. Whether when I, when I actually get the chance to do that, I'll enjoy it. I don't know. I've gone back to a bit of Mike Takeshi recently and I definitely feel a bit more lukewarm. The guy puts out a film every six months, so if you miss this one, another one will be right around the corner. But if you're in any way interested in sort of Japanese genre films of the last 20 years, then you'll know this guy already. And if not, I would say probably at this point, stay clear. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> a fair comment, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, what yeah. have you got for your comment? Uh, I've got uh, Lady Bird, which is garnering some, garnering some harp at the moment. Oh, hell yeah. Garnering some harp? What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Who's that one Don't that Andy, Andy Samberg's married to? She plays the harp, doesn't yeah, she? That's Joanna Newsom, but Joanna yes. Newsom. Um, yeah, Joanna Newsom. Yeah, Joanna Newsom loves this movie. Yeah. I've so heard. this is Lady Bird, which is garnering some hype at the moment. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> or harp hype? hype? Yes. Maybe like very delicate hype. The Bristol guys are calling it. So you should carry on. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so this is Greta Gerwig's direct. Is this directorial debut? Is that correct? It she is, made a film yeah. before. Uh, that I think is is the quickest film to 100% Rotten Tomatoes rating. Is that or is that correct? I, I, there's something like that. Yeah, yeah with its 100% approval rating. Um, again, I mean, we've talked about, haven't we, Paul? That the fact that in case people aren't aware, Rotten Tomatoes is a fundamentally flawed, that? Jack. flawed rating system. I turned oh. Jack, oh. Jack was just chiming in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a fundamentally flawed system. However, if a film has a 100% approval rating, that still means that it's yeah. getting a lot of buzz, as you well, said. Yeah, it means it's got every review over three stars, technically, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think the, the trailer looks cool. Uh, I'm not quite as into Greta... Uh, I keep I want to say Greta Garbo, but it's not Greta Garbo, it's Greta Gerwig. I'm not quite into probably Greta Gerwig's work as I'd say you are, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the film looks cool. Saoirse Ronan always, for me, delivers um, a, a very good performance. The film looks nice enough, I think I would say. And I think it was, you know, it's, I don't know, it's difficult with films of this type because it is quite easy to go, oh, look, it looks like a, just another, another Sundance-esque indie film. I think this will be more than that. Um, and I'm quite looking forward to seeing it if they ever bloody hurry up and release it over here because I think it's already out in the States. Mm, okay. uh, well, I know it's already out in the States actually because I spoke to someone the other day who'd been over there and seen it. Um, one of the people I might do the other podcast with. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, no. Um, so, yeah, I just hope they just hurry up and release it over here. It, it frustrates me the fact we have to have this staggered release between the US yeah, and the UK. Definitely. I think it's like February, it's down for like February release or something, I think, at the oh, moment, okay. which is just ridiculous. But anyway, yes. Uh, that's my coming attraction, Jack. Have you got have you uh, got a coming attraction for this week? Have we? Yeah. So I um, obviously the teaser trailer for Jurassic, the new Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom appeared. Who's on, directing uh, this? Uh, J.A. Uh, Bayona. Yeah. Oh, Juan Antonio Bayona. Yes, yeah. that's it. <laughs> there the... isn't there isn't actually a plot being released yet, so not really sure what's going to happen. But the teaser trailer has a massive volcano. Blowing up. Well, Jay Bernard is definitely going to be capable of this, uh, pulling this off because he's already done the impossible. 
Yes. Move on. And when a, okay. and when a monster <laughs> He directed the film The Impossible. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I agree. That's I was gonna where follow you up both with a laugh. Joke. I was gonna follow laugh up with a joke. first, <laughs> then <laughs> say the joke. And he can definitely handle big creatures on the screen when a monster calls. Oh no, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's next? Do you Jack, you tell ruined, us more. The just, falling yeah, sorry, we keep ruining on? Jack's section. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, well, there hasn't been a plot uh, released yet, so there's not any much, actors not attached to this. Yeah, so is it a film? It is a film. Uh, you got Bryce Dallas Howard back, back in the high heels, yeah. maybe, uh, and obviously Chris Pratt, Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum back in this is Ian yeah, Malcolm. He Hopefully, he's the Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park and not the Ian Malcolm from The Lost World because they are two completely different characters. They are, but definitely. yeah, <laughs> but not Laura Dern. Um, no, don't think so. No, I'm out. No, I'm not. Um, I'm back so in. that's uh, I think it's set for release um, June 2018. So quite a while to wait. Big tentpole movie next summer, then I guess. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Looking forward to uh, to that. Then I, I guess some insert another joke about Jay Viona that I haven't thought of yet. Move on. Next section. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't go to the film orphanage. Right, next section. <laughs> <laughs> So, we are back, and we are back for a reason, Paul. To cleanse the palate of those terrible J.A. Viola jokes. The first one was amazing. Go back and listen to it again, and just, like, bask in it, you know. I did enjoy it, I just hadn't decided let, let to it, laugh. Let it wash over okay. you, Paul. Right. It's like the impossible. Okay, That's we, not funny, anyway, right, feature, review, feature <laughs> reviews. Feature so, reviews, I'm putting first, my foot down. First feature review <laughs> for you, sir, is uh, Battle of the Sexes, which is a film ostensibly about tennis, but also about other issues, as we touched upon earlier on. Um, this one is uh, directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris, and written by Simon Simon Beaufoy. But um, the thing that people would have noticed from the early sort of promotional stuff is that it stars both Emma Stone and Steve Carell, um, alongside Andrea Riseborough, who I think is, is also very good in this film. Steve Carell um, did a sports film not that long ago that did quite well in, oh, in Foxcatcher. Fox yeah. yeah, and Emma Stone obviously is riding a wave of, of sort of growing and growing popularity off the back of the Oscar nomination for La La Land, etc. and so on. Um, this one tells the story of Billie Jean King's match against uh, her male counterpart and I've lost the name of the guy now hold on give me a second uh, someone Briggs wasn't it Bobby Riggs Bobby Riggs Bobby Riggs played Billie Jean King in uh, a real life tennis match dubbed the battle of the sexes to prove which was the stronger sex although of course um, here we had a, a man sort of in his mid 50s or early 50s I think playing a sort of prime um, prime Billie Jean King as, as far as we understand from the film anyway I didn't know that much about the story to be honest going in but what's more interesting even maybe than that is the fact that Billie Jean King's character is having um, or seems to be having a growing romantic relationship with the character played by Andrea Andrea Riseborough against or without the initial knowledge of her husband and trying to find a way to spread her wings and be independent and express herself and do the things that she wants to do in a patriarchal society that's trying to force those inclinations out of her. And then we come to the arena of sport where this is going to be set into relief by this tennis match climax, I guess. Here's a clip. 
Don't get me wrong, I love women, in the bedroom and in the kitchen, but these days they want to be everywhere, they want to be doing everything. Where is it gonna end? Pretty soon us fellas aren't gonna be able to go to a ball game, we're not gonna be able to go fishing, we're not gonna be able to stop and have a drink after work, and that's what this whole women's lit thing is about, and it's gotta stop, and Bobby Riggs is the man to stop it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Custer's last stand. This is the lobber versus the lever. <laughs> <laughs> Keep talking, Bobby. The more nonsense you spell, the worse it's going to be when you lose. So yeah, that's a, that little clip there is, uh, sets the scene with Steve Carell's character, um, who is well, a, 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 sh- a self-proclaimed. Uh, he, wants to, pig. he wants to put the show back into chauvinist. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually goes out to court yeah. with <laughs> yeah. a little piglet um, to sort of hammer this point. Yeah, so uh, yeah, he's a, he's a piece of work, and I, I did do, I did a little bit of reading afterwards, and actually quite a lot of what you see and like the, the, some of the pictures they throw up at the end are actually true. So it's um, well, yeah, they he, he strikes like, me newsreel stuff at the end though, as well. It sort of matches. Yeah, he strikes shots. me as a bit of a cock, but definitely a character. Character, uh, def- yeah. cer- certainly an entertainer, and I think um, Steve Carell's performance. Uh, well, the performances in general, but Steve Carell's performance, I'd say, is one of the highlights of. Uh, it's one of the highlights yeah. of this film. I think he's well, great in this. We should say um, at the outset that the, the sort of initial drama comes about with the fact that the women's tennis tour um, sort of led as a spearhead is, is Billie Jean King, I guess, as a sort of vocal advocate for equal pay. And because they're not able to get anything like equal pay, I think early on they're told that for the tournament they're going to play, they'll receive something like one eight. They'll receive fifteen hundred, and the males will receive twelve thousand. Right. So, <laughs> so nothing, money, yeah. nothing comparable to what the, the, their male counterparts are receiving. So they band together, decide to reject their membership in the the tennis tour, and they want to form the women's tennis tour, as I believe still exists now. Right. I think so. I don't know. I'm not I'm a not big tennis fan. To be a fair, but, but yeah, expert. I think this was like a. a you know, uh, touch paper moment where they really spark something off that carried into the future. They start touring around playing these, like you'd have sort of like indie wrestling shows, you know, where like they're yeah. like a traveling circus, but it's not obviously, it's not a circus here, it's female tennis of the, the highest order. And they're led by a chain smoking Sarah Silverman. Uh, oh, in this she was film. brilliant. Who's she, great in this as well. She, yeah. She's yeah. good value. I mean, she's doing more and more, I think, dramatic stuff. Um, aside her, you know, comic uh, stand-up and all that kind of thing, we've also got in here um, Bobby Riggs' wife, Priscilla Riggs, played by Elizabeth Shue. Nice to see her getting a role. Yeah, it? I thought oh, I haven't seen been... her for a while. Yeah. Um, although she's, I think she's done a couple of films this year. I've just not caught up with them. But yeah, so it's um, nice to see her back on the screen. Yeah, and then Fred Armisen playing like a, a, a that we know from things like Portlandia. Fred Armisen plays a uh, like supplements guru <laughs> yeah, yeah. or charlatan or whatever who's, who's sort of pumping Bobby Riggs full of supplements because that will make him superhuman by the time. The, the match comes around but yeah I, I think Paul at this point you said um, going in that Steve Carell certainly a character is a good performance I think Emma Stone is good here too I think the most interesting part of the film for me and what I wish they'd spent more time on maybe is the romance between Emma Stone's character and Andrea Riseborough's character am I you know where do, where do you stand on that I mean I kind I kind of agree I just my frustration with it is I think it's it's like a, a lot of films with this with this caliber of actors in it is the performances actually end up being I would say noticeably better than the film itself I think the the, the problem with this is and I I hadn't thought of it that way but I, I think I, I do kind of come down on your side on this is the fact that it's just it's it's played almost they almost play the film too safe if that makes sense it's just like you've kind of you've seen the trailer and my wife said she wasn't interested because she's seen the trailer she kind of feels she's seen the film 
and you kind of have with this kind of kind of Hollywood issues film. Um, if you know where I'm coming from, like you, you know what's coming next. You've got your bit. You've got you're going to have your big stand up speeches where they have their moments, which yeah. is basically for your, the for your consideration moments. Um, you're going to have you, you're going to have some fairly rousing set pieces. And I thought the tennis the tennis match at the end was actually probably one of the best bits about it. I would diverge um, from you there, Paul, because but, I I think you know that actually what played against the film in terms of keeping my interest is once you get to that final match I mean we know the match was a real thing and let's mm. be honest going in we kind of know something about the outcome of the yeah. match right I don't think that's spoiling anything so it, they play that out for a long time I didn't really understand the the inclination that someone must have had that we needed that much of the tennis match to me the tennis match is such a sideline when it comes to it's just a way of setting a scene setting up a dynamic for a load of other issues surrounding it I also feel like the film slightly pulls its punches towards the end if it was you know punchy to begin with where it kind of left let the the Bobby Riggs character fairly off the hook. Um, I would agree with that again because it's I think because it's playing it safe. Like I think mm. if because they they don't you know they want they want to make a point but they don't want to go in too hard because they want to I just possibly because they're trying to reach for like a, the widest. Would you say it's like, would you say it's possible. like a like a gentle rally rather than a competitive tennis match? Yes, I, I like that. Just I like underhand, that. Yeah. purely yeah. underhand, no, no overhand serving. If you could see how proud he looks of that uh, of that comment, that would you know it, that was touching. It's not nice. as not as proud as the nice. Jay Bayona one, but no. you know we'll move on. No, I would agree with that, and I think that the problem is, yeah, I do agree that it pulls his punches, and this is. This is Hollywood all over again, but I, I will disagree on the, the actual tennis match because I have to say the the actual tennis match at the end kind of rescued like a point back for me to be honest because um, because we could have to be fifteen points, wouldn't it? It was or, or yeah. ten points. Yeah, yeah, I was about to make that similar gag, but thanks. Uh, yeah, so it did. It... What is this thing he does where he like gets annoyed because <laughs> I said a funny thing and he was about to say it? Just say it earlier. That's the way well, out. That's of that. true. Yeah, no fair, fair. Uh, yeah, so it went. They kind of pulled it back to advantage from Juice. There we go. I've done it. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so yeah, it kind of fit me. The tennis game pulled it back, but I think for the most part we're, we're kind of on the same page on the fact. No, it didn't pull enough punches. And you did say to me, it as pulled well, too many punches. As sorry. Well, I said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what I was going to say, Paul, is uh, yeah, or didn't land enough punches. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What uh, we talked about off air was the fact that I said to the guys when they were going to go see this in a different screening to me that I think that there's this sort of scene in this film that sort of stands stood out for me. I don't know if it worked for other people as potentially one of my scenes of the year, even though the film overall definitely won't get near my top ten list. Do you know which scene that is? I think it is. I think I do know which scene it is. Can you briefly outline think, it if it doesn't spoil any of the plot? I think it's the initial hairdressing scene where she meets... That would be a, probably a close second. Oh, is it not? It's okay. a close second. Right. No, okay. Jack. Oh, I don't know. Is there any bit in this where you thought, oh, someone with incredible taste would probably pick that out? I really it? thought it would be the hairdressing scene. I was I was sitting there, I was like, that's Pete's, that's Pete's scene. That, that would, I think that just got toppled soon after. It's the sequence that takes place in the nightclub between Billie Jean King. Oh, okay, and, and so it's a similar sequence. It is. Yeah. To the music, the music playing over the top is Crimson and Clover. Yeah. And oh, yeah. the way that that scene is shot, the lighting, the looks between the two characters, I'm like, can we just have a love story about these mm. people? I don't care about the tennis. I don't care about the chauvinist guy. I don't care about historical fact. I just want to have a love story between these two characters. So if we could please have a lesbian love story between Emma Stone and Angela Riseborough 
made by somebody else we can revisit this later but okay, yeah, interesting. beautiful, beautiful uh, Jack person. we neglected to bring you in earlier because you've seen this haven't you you went, you, went, you went to the cinema this week I did you yeah. did look at you trying I to contribute know, more I know, I know. he can be the umpire is that, uh, is that okay yeah. to uh, say I, I could be that okay to controlling say? you two you cannot it? be serious yes um, <laughs> yeah well I I think you didn't really have to know much about tennis or enjoy tennis that much to go and watch this. No, film. I don't. I'm not a big um, tennis fan by because any Because I think the tennis was just in the background for most of it. And I I like your point about the club scene. I think that was it was perfect, perfectly shot and really nice. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I got a little bit bored throughout it. I'd got a little bit bored. Yeah. It was and again it was the tennis match that, that kind of pulled my attention back into it to be honest. I like that. Um and then that point two, at the end. two hours and one minute, by the way. It was. It seems a little bit. It was a long film. Yeah, I must admit. Uh, the thing I didn't really like was uh, the CGI um, crowd right at the end. See, did you notice this, Peter? Jack mentioned this earlier. I didn't. Uh, I didn't, didn't pick, pick up, up on, on it. That, but, no, the, like just the massive stadium crowd just yeah. looked really CGI. Okay. And just, it threw me off a little bit. Yeah. It was the last bit of the film, but I think I have to say the match was probably one of the best bits I suppose my appreciation of the tennis match might have been dulled slightly by like the bar that was set by Gold to Live in the Dream because like when you've been that close to the action anything less than that is going to seem sort of second rate I guess yeah I've not seen the gold films um, well get on it yeah <laughs> you should didn't they I read about them I think in yeah. a film magazine did they in, ever make gold in 3 in shit films they, month did they, they might, did they yeah. ever make gold 3 because it was supposed well, to be the a first one came out I think they ran out of money so. for gold 3 it was supposed to be where Santiago Munoz Munoz goes to uh, he plays for his country he, yeah right? he goes and his country is Mexico Mexico they were going to go to the right. world cup yeah. right and yeah it, I don't think it happened but I don't know we'll have to look that up it's a shame. If yeah. only I had a laptop in front of me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that are we? So yeah. So overall, think, then I'd say the Battle of the Sexes. It was okay. Yeah. Um, I, there's, there's enough to like, I think. Yeah. I mean, this point has been made elsewhere by by smarter people than I. But I think this film did have that feel of a film that the filmmakers thought would be coming out in a Hillary Clinton administration. Right. Very okay. much had that yeah. that feel about it. That doesn't mean it's a bad film. I think though also. It, you know, it compares a little unfavourably with something like Hidden Figures. Um, that yeah, sort I thought of, Hidden Figures was better. Yeah, that, certainly, that, yeah. Like you were saying, Paul, that sort of crowd-pleasing, fairly middle-of-the-road film, there's nothing wrong with that. It's telling a true story. It's a compelling story. But just maybe... Um, and again, like touching on your point, I think really strong performances, yeah. but maybe not a fantastic screenplay around yeah. those performances and this central nugget of sort of historical fact that is so compelling. So, yeah. I mean, check check it out, decide for yourself. But I think we come down on what... I don't know what the tennis tie-in is with what I'm about to say, but we, we come Juice. in... Juice. New balls, please. Is it juice? <laughs> New balls, please. <laughs> right, moving on. Uh, up, up next, we have a review of Michael Haneke's Happy End. So, to bring this show to a happy end, we have got the film Happy End from director Michael Haneke, known for his uh, whimsical rom-coms and uh, slapstick <laughs> comedy. No, anyone familiar with Michael Haneke will know that um, he is a man known and sometimes criticised for his very um, sort of serious, biting, cutting and rather didactic screenplays. Um, most well-known amongst those probably being Funny Games that was then remade into an American, uh, almost shot-for-shot equivalent, which seemed a bit weird. He worked on that. 
um, as well. And then um, things like Hidden or Caché, as it is in French. And, oh, uh, that's an excellent the, film. The White Ribbon, um, and more recently, Amour, which I believe we may have reviewed on this very show, Paul, um, unless we were on hiatus at the time. Amour, which told the story of sort of an, an end-of-life um the quiet sort of agonising drama of end of life in this film we are dealing with a kind of connected story Michael Haneke I believe has deliberately um, linked the family and the the well, I suppose it's kind of, of a sequel. It's is, sort of, yeah. It, do you know what I mean? Uh, kind but, of. But there's this weird thing about characters having slightly different names. I don't know. Um, let's not worry too much about that. At, at the head of the family um, is Jean-Louis Trintignant, if I've done okay with that name, who plays Georges Laurent, who is the head of the Laurent Corporation, who seem to be like a, a major building contractor, right? Like a free enterprising yeah. building contractor. And they operate in Calais. Calais, obviously, is in northern France, and it's right by the infamous jungle um, compound for refugees looking to get over the, the channel to the UK and seeking asylum or refuge in, in other countries. Uh, that's not an accidental setting, of course. A filmmaker like Michael Haneke is so sort of exacting and meticulous that these kinds of decisions are made for a reason they make here a backdrop where we have a bourgeois family caught up in um, amongst other things the sort of clutches of new technology end of life misery um, sort of a, a, a lack or loss of direction or hope uh, it all sounds very very cheerful does it not <laughs> I think if we've got one are we going to play a clip no we're not going to play it, it was in it, French isn't it wasn't it before the show I said don't mention yeah. how we haven't got a clip and then yeah. I went and cued yeah. Jack up well it's that. in French so it, yeah, it seems a bit pointless putting out a, a so, clip so uh, Paul are um, we going to play a clip no 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 <laughs> okay. so uh, g- give us your thoughts Paul I mean where where do you first of all where do you come in on Michael Haneke I fucking love this? Michael Haneke he is g- genuinely one of my all time favourite directors I think he's an incredible filmmaker I think his his technical ability and some of his his use of visuals and the way he plays around with the audience uh, and really makes the audience work and really really makes the audience work for for kind of the enjoyment I love um, so yes yeah, so I was it's it's fair to say I was very excited for this I, I don't reckon um, Michael Haneke loves you I think he'd probably feel a cold indifference towards you he probably would and most fair, other yeah. people yeah most we'll people most people feel a cold indifference towards me to be fair. <laughs> no that's that's never happened um yeah, I, as I said, so I, I really love the director. He is certainly one of my favourite directors. Um, and I loved... Amour was his last film. Amour was it definitely was, his last yeah. film. And I, I, adore, I adored Amour, shall we say. Um, so yeah, so Happy End is, is an interesting one. I, it's difficult because, as I said, I, I, I like the fact that Michael Haneke makes his audience work. And I like the fact he doesn't always lay everything out for you. For me, this happy end feels like a slightly lesser Michael Haneke work, probably because of this. Because I think for for certainly the first hour, hour and fifteen, it, it is so vague. As for me, I found it so vague as to who's related to who. And I picked up a, a family tree when I was in the cinema in Bristol, which explained all the the family links as, as promotional material. And so I'd, I'd done a bit of reading on that, and even even that sort of having that prior knowledge. I found this film to be incredibly vague and very, very hard work. I don't know where you... I, I heard somebody describe this, and again, I wish I could drop in the name, but it was a letterbox reviewer, described this as um, 
a story in which usually you have characters who are dots joined together by lines, but this film is purely dots, which I thought was <laughs> yeah, like a, I think a kind of a lovely way of putting it. I think it. that's a, yeah, it's a very, very well put, to be fair. Yeah, I, I think that's, that by and large, that's true. I mean, we have, um, again, Isabelle Huppert plays a, a sort of disenfranchised, high-powered businesswoman who has a disappointing son. That sounds familiar, doesn't mm. it? Because that's exactly what she played in, in L in a, a slightly different way. Um, she's a fantastic actress. We know this already. I think she's really good here as well, although she doesn't maybe get quite as much to do as in a film like like Elle, I don't think, or, or have to sort of stretch herself quite as much. Um, my my issue, Paul, is um, I think that the the setup that I was talking about is um, is for, sort of so carefully manicured to within a sort of inch of its life that by the time we get this scene towards the end where a group of and again this is not a spoilery type film really but you get a group of um, asylum seekers from the jungle compound who are brought by the disenfranchised son played by the guy who was in Victoria I forget that guy's name he does an amazing amazing rendition of um, Sears Chandelier which reminded me a little bit of my own wedding reception to be honest Franz, <laughs> uh, Franz Rogowski is the, the guy's name and you're absolutely right Paul <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, like this year's uh, what's she called uh, Hula the the actress yes in, from um, um, uh, that film Tony Erdman, Tony Erdman yeah yeah the the uh, karaoke scene in Tony Erdman I mean the karaoke scene in Tony Erdman is better Tony Erdman is also a better film than this film because of this and it came to mind in that scene actually mm. and that's I think where I started moving away from the movie in terms of my not it's not about enjoyment I don't really care about enjoyment I care about like what I feel the filmmakers trying to convey and how successfully or not they've done that and how much I guess and this is a problem with Michael Haneke like how much humanity there is in that because I get this feeling that having made a more which seemed like the ice you know thawing slightly on the yeah. uh, on the sort of veneer of Michael Haneke towards this compassion for other human beings that very veneer over there staring down lovelessly oh, yeah, into my eyes yeah I was just Paul's so got a box set there's a Blu-ray box set on the shelf with Michael Haneke just glaring at us yeah, he does not <laughs> yeah, approve of this yeah. review at all but yeah uh, I, I felt like there was a lot more compassion in a more and it's almost as if he's taken a step back now away from that you know, precipice of sort of letting go and releasing and realising that the human experience requires you to sort of open up your heart and accept other people and you can't just be didactically telling people how to think all the time. And he's gone back to this feeling where that scene struck me as in sort of disingenuous isn't the right word, but like a, quite distasteful, to be honest, because... I feel at this point like you're you're poking the bourgeois without without really knowing why you're doing it. I, I mean, maybe I'm saying the same thing as I was saying about Lona Scherfig and, and the Riot Club. But do you know what I'm trying to get? I think at? I know where you're coming from. It, I, I, it wasn't that wasn't an issue for me. I think my my issue was was more with the vagueness, and I think because he has made such good films in the past. That when he does, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go as far as say this is a misstep. But when he makes a film that's not quite as good, I think it's. But you see, I think Paul, it's evident. But, but you see, Paul, this is where I diverge because I don't know. And, and again, maybe I'm wrong. But don't you have that feeling a little bit? Like you know, when you listen to a band when mm. you're a certain age and you think like this band completely get me, 
and I yeah. get them. And then later on, 10, 15 years later, you know, in our in our advanced age, um, you listen to that band again and you think, I just don't really connect with this. I wouldn't say it's gone as far as that with Michael Haneker, but I think early on, that early trick, the, you know, freeze frame, breaking the fourth wall, talking mm. to the audience, you're complicit, you're responsible for violence, watch people suffer. Now, getting some of that stuff, albeit a bit more refined, he's an older man, hits me in a way that I find a lot less agreeable and I'm not a student anymore and, I, and I'm not saying that like if you like Michael Haneker it's like a student-y opinion that's not my feeling but like I don't know what we're what purpose we're serving with this film yeah it's going to it's going to get awards praise I'm sure uh, in, in some circles I'm sure it's already picked up some kind of award did it not uh, at Cannes I don't think it did no oh, okay. he, he missed out to the square Ruben Austin oh, you're square right. didn't yeah, he for, um, yeah. Yeah, which... um, and you know th- there's a lot to like I mean Toby Jones is good in this yeah, no, uh, I, I, Bella I, Pair's good in I this I see where you're coming from I just think maybe maybe this is I, I think I think what I take from what you're trying to say is this is a trick that he's played before quite often and well, it, it's, might it's be like nice, a, it might be nice to see him do something a little bit different but it's like an amalgamation uh, amalgamation of like a load of tricks that he's played before and I don't think he'll do anything different. It's more that. It's more the mm. feeling I have about Chris Nolan, where I'm like, Chris Nolan, they're totally different filmmakers in, in many ways. Not in all ways, but in many ways. But Chris they're Nolan, both meticulous, though, aren't they? They're they both, are yeah. both meticulous. And I think they both struggle with the human heart. And I think mm. that's a problem. And it's a problem for me, and it might be a problem for other people. That doesn't mean I can't... I don't want to say... You can't say, like, I admire it, though, because then what do I admire? Yeah, but you could... I think, no, I think I think you can, because his technical ability... Yeah, like, okay. it, the, the film looks incredible. No, you're right, you're there's right. That one, there's that one shot of, of the um, of the patriarchal character in his, like, wheelchair, in his, like, mobility scooter thing, driving down the street, and then the, the camera just stops, and it just looks incredible. So, yeah, you can. You can certainly admire... That, his... Like, even that scene... I know the one you're talking yeah. about. I love that we're getting animated about yeah. this. So that scene is a, a thing that he's done before. Where you put it's the, still great. You put the camera behind a load of traffic noise, so we can't hear what the people are talking about. It feels like something that David Lynch did. In well, like he did the, it at the end of Hidden. Uh, uh, he did it at the end of Hidden. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's done it himself, and, and that doesn't nullify the effect of that particular technique, but it does make me feel like. I don't know. I found that stuff about him desiring the end of his life to yeah. be somewhat interesting, but he doesn't go any further with that, and then. Again, I'm not going to say what happens, but the most for me, um, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm losing my vocabulary today. The the way that this film finished just for me was like, is that what you really feel? Is that what you really feel, or did that just seem quite a cool finish to a movie? I mean, there's that film, The Consequences of Love, which has like a similar-ish feeling. Yeah. I think it still has more heart and, and a more interesting, maybe central performance, but. I don't know. I mean, I love the way... Love. I like the way yeah. that Michael Haneke's bedding modern technology into his filmmaking. Yeah, that was and, clever, yeah. And that's absolutely of a piece with what he was doing in the late 90s. So I love that he's taking that well, on Well, Benny's board. video is a prime example. Benny's yeah. video... Uh, in fact, this feels almost like there's some... Again, I suppose there's some recycled themes from Benny's video here, definitely. Yeah. And I love that sort of stuff. And, and I'll watch the next Michael Haneke film. I just hope it's maybe more along the lines of not a more in terms of being about the very end of life although this film is kind of about that as yeah. well let's be perfectly honest called happy end and we don't really mean happy do we guys no i don't know i sort of came out of it paul feeling like i i appreciate that michael haneker is a very skilled filmmaker yeah however 
my word, do I want to just go and tell someone that I love them and care about them and I feel <laughs> hope for the future and things can be better? Because we can all be cynical. We can all be, uh, we can all judge from a distance or sort of have highfalutin opinions about the relationship between the sort of proletariat and the bourgeoisie whilst not being involved in enacting any change. And I kind of feel like that's what both Riot Club and this are doing in completely different ways. Yeah. Sorry I to mean, link I, those together. No, no, I, 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 I disagree on this film. I think if he makes another similar film, I will probably come down on the same side as you are. Um, but that pretty much wraps up our... Well, that does wrap up well, our review you, of Happy End. Um, you've got I've a chunky got, book in your hands, though. I've got you, the Paul? book. I've got the Have You Seen book. Uh, and I'm going to flick through the book today. Okay. Shouts to my boys. Who wants to pick out a number? Jack, do you want to pick out a number? 155. Is incorrect. No, not really. Okay. Um, <laughs> 155. The film on page 155 is. Ooh. Drum roll, please. That's Celine so... and Julie go boating. Never seen it. Have wow. you seen it? Never no, seen it. I've never that. even. I've, I've not even aware to. of that. Oh, I've, I've absolutely wanted film. to, and I've never seen it. Okay. So we Fantastic. will uh, get on that and review it next time. Yes, I look forward to it. So repeat that. So that is Celine and Julie go boating. Can awesome. we give? Can we give any further details? Uh, I'm uh, trying. He doesn't. This director's. Yeah, amazing, the book isn't great at that. Released in 1974. Sir, you are correct. Um, this one is, stars Julie Berto and Dominique Labrouillet. It's French. Um, <laughs> and aside from that, what other information? It's three hours and thirteen minutes long. Oh. So a lot to get your teeth into. Ladies. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Jacques Rivet is the director. Oh, okay, cool. Right, that is a director I'm so familiar with. So proper cinephile territory, we need to get onto stuff like this to, you know, really boost our credibility yes. on the cutthroat internet. We have just talked about Michael Haneke, so I think we're right. But, yeah, yeah, and actually I felt that Michael Haneke's work was of a piece with all other Michael Haneke <laughs> yes. works and uh, really right, anyway, a powerful and, message. Yes, uh, right, that's pretty much it. So if you can, if you can, if you'd like to, you can find us on at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, um, at Strangers in a Cinema. Um, another thing to note, we've purchased the domain name, so watch this space. Website coming. Uh, website Or website coming back, shall we say. Um, and yeah that's pretty much it so yeah, find I'm, us where you can um, I'm off to uh, wheel myself into the sea uh, what about you Jack? oh I'm going to go to bed I think lovely okay, stuff good right well Catch goodbye shut up and sit down